genuine revolution of values means in the final analysis that our loyalties must become ecumenical rather than sectional. Every nation must now develop an overriding loyalty to mankind as a whole in order to preserve the best in their individual societies. This call for worldwide fellowship that lifts neighborly concern beyond one's tribe, race, class, and nation is in reality a call for an all-embracing and unconditional love for all mankind. When I speak of love, I'm not speaking of some sentimental and weak response. I'm speaking of that force which all of the great religions have seen as the supreme unifying principle of life. We can no longer afford to worship the God of hate, bow before the altar of retaliation. History is cluttered with the records of nations and individuals that pursued this self-defeating path of hate. You are listening to What in the World right here on WERALP, Arlington, Virginia. I am your host, Bumi Akinosotu. It's been tradition to think of Martin Luther King Jr. as a civil rights leader who fought and died for justice here in America. We typically don't think of Martin Luther King Jr. as a foreign policy leader, though. Towards the latter part of his life, he spoke against the Vietnam War and America's questionable involvement in Latin America. He had this undying belief that we are all tied together in a single garment of destiny, an inescapable network of mutuality. This sentiment is echoed in his 1967 speech entitled Beyond Vietnam, where he opposes the Vietnam War and America's foreign policy actions of that time. To honor the 50th anniversary of Dr. Martin Luther King's uh, Jr.'s assassination on April 4th, I thought we'd discuss a different way to look at American foreign policy and global issues, and that is as the human body. And Helping us to do this is Vasu Mohan. Vasu is the Regional Director for Asia Pacific at the International Foundation for Electoral Systems, IFES, and he's going to share a little bit about what they do. For the past two decades, uh, Vasu has worked on democracy, governance, and human rights promotion with a focus on post-conflict elections, democratic inclusion, and political, social, and legal empowerment of those who are disenfranchised and historically been marginalized. These groups we typically know as women, ethnic and religious minorities, and people living with disabilities. Vassal recently wrote a paper on hate speech in elections, which I I think is very timely. And we will talk about his paper and his work later on um, as he's traveled all around the world working on elections and and hate and fostering more inclusive um, democracies and, and inclusive elections. So Vasu, thank you. Welcome to the show. It's it's great to have you. Thank you, Vinmi. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Uh, so what brought you to the world of democracy, governance, and, and human rights, and sort of what in your personal life has guided you to this space? That's a really interesting question. You know, we pick our careers partly based on our personal lives and sometimes just chance. Um, I think um, if you had asked me what I would, what I wanted to be when I was young, I would have said I want to be a journalist, oh. um, uh, like my father and my grandfather, who are both journalists. And I was thoroughly fascinated with international affairs, with politics, and it was it was really the wanting to know what drives the world <laughs> and who are the people who yeah, drive yeah, the yeah. world and. But I also had in uh, 1983, as a um, young child in Sri Lanka, I went through the ethnic uh, riots of 1983 and um, had to um, move to uh, India, leaving everything I knew behind. And while I've continued to go back and engage in Sri Lanka, that migration, that point of being uprooted from what you're familiar with uh, and being thrown into a completely new country, even though we spoke the same language on both sides of the Park Strait, it was a different country with a different set of experiences. And I think, you know, having seen conflict at its worst Mm. really always um, led me to question everything with a sense of, is this fair? Right. Is this just? Is, is it everyone, necessary? Is it necessary? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Is everyone, you know, um, is anyone's wishes and dreams, are they being curtailed in any way? And what can we do to um, not let that happen? Right. So it's, so that sort of has always been a motivation of my uh, career. And I've now been working with um, IFIS since 2001. Um, and it's been a, um, truly, it's been an honor to be part of this work globally, particularly in that I in the question of um, 
elections. Yeah. What, what intrigues you about elections in particular? Because you could go you could go sort of the peace building route and work on, you know, maybe youth issues or um, work on governance, you know, in some very. But elections are a pretty specific area to focus on. Why would you pick that or what what drives you to that that space? Elections are fundamentally a way in which, you know, first of all, they are a universal human right. And it is the way in which we have a say on who governs us and how we are governed. Um, so it's the will of the people shall be the basis of government. Mm. Elections is the mechanism through which that will is translated into representation. Right. So. So in a certain sense, there's the um, mechanics of the elections, which are really interesting, mm -hmm. that translates votes into seats right. and campaigns and, you know, um, and inclusion and um, human rights. But there's also the broader space where you talked about youth. I think involving youth in elections is a fundamental challenge mm. uh, for a lot of democracies. Yeah. Um, I think even in uh, our own country, you know, youth participation in elections has been historically not that high. Uh, but most recently, we've had some fantastic, right, right, uh, right. you know, examples of youth voices yeah. saying that they will use the vote yeah. to bring about the policy changes they want. So I think these things are connected. The point that I'm making, you cannot have good governance you cannot have inclusion without good elections. So mm -hmm. it's one of um, the key components. By no means is it the only component, right. but it is a very important component yeah. of democracy and good governance. A lot of what drew me to you was sort of the role of your faith in the work that you do. Can you talk a little bit? I mean, in foreign policy, we, <laughs> we, we don't talk about religion in terms of, you know, how it impacts your policy decisions. We, if we talk about religion, it's usually about how we counter violent, you know, radical religion and extremists, right? It's usually in that context. But we never bring in the personal aspects of religion and how our personal beliefs or religious beliefs might impact the work that we do or shape the, the work that we do. So how for you has your faith impacted your work? I think fundamentally, my religious faith, I'm a Baha'i, and the uh, Baha'i faith has sort of three core teachings, the oneness of God, the oneness of religions, and the oneness of humanity. And in the Baha'i faith and Baha'i scriptures, the purpose of life is to carry forward and contribute to an ever advancing civilization. So in choosing careers or in choosing how to engage with our careers and lives and communities, Baha'is always have this notion of optimism, um, not an utopian optimism, mm. but an optimism tainted by our collective efforts matter. Our efforts to be good people and to bring that into work with us, and that is that includes all aspects of work. That it, but it could be foreign policy, it could be education, right, or be nursing, health. or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Bringing in who we are and the principles that move us to our work is a fundamental um, component of this. And work done in the spirit of service in the Baha'i teachings is considered worship. Wow, that's definitely not sort of the cultural norms here. I would say in the Western world, we typically try to leave our work and our home life or personal life separate and we don't usually talk about religion at, at work. Uh, I want to I wanna sort of pick up on this idea of oneness of, of all of us and humanity. Uh, it's something uh, that's, again, not very common uh, in the foreign policy discourse. And in particular, uh, we have these ideas, right, in, in foreign policy literature about the way countries view other countries, the way they view other people. And for people who have listened to my very first episode of What in the World, uh, I had Ambassador Brigitte come and talk on the show about realism and liberalism and constructivism and all the isms, the ways that we view the world. And some countries and their leaders see the world as inherently competitive. It's survival of the fittest. And others think that we should all adhere to a set of universal values and, and rules of law and, and, and follow institutions that keep everyone in check. And so this idea of thinking of oneness in foreign policy runs contrary to many who maybe fall on the realist end <laughs> of the survival of the fittest. And you reimagine this world of power and, and um, these, this world of just all of these global issues. 
Can you explain this concept, which I find very interesting, this concept of the world as the human body and and how do we apply this in a time of extreme polarization and extreme isolation coming from all corners of, of the world? How, what exactly does do you mean by sort of the, the seeing foreign policy as the human body or seeing the world as the human body? So I first ran into this analogy in the writings of Baha'u'llah, the founder of the Baha'i Faith. And I thought it was truly revolutionary, this <laughs> uh, um, idea. And then as I slowly started studying this, um, I also realized that there were kernels of this in all the great religious traditions in the world, perhaps not using the same analogy, but in Hinduism, for example, the whole world is talked of as being one family, mm. right? And in other religious traditions, they would talk about all of us being children of one God. Mm-hmm. So this idea that we are all connected right. in some way right. has been fundamental to religion and philosophy right. um, and even the uh, you know our own doc- founding documents here in the US talk about these inalienable rights right. that are god given right? right so there's this connection of belonging to something whole but this particular analogy of the human body then pushes you to think about how diverse the human body is so that's the first thing that stands out in you know in, when we look at this analogy and it it really talks about cells and um, organs and different parts of our body that function essentially in collaboration mm. they are fundamentally cooperating with each other mm-hmm. you cannot explain the human body in terms of competition right so this idea of survival of the fittest it really questions that is, yeah you know um, so while that may have been where you know some evolution uh, happened, but if even you look at that, I think how you know how do the different parts of the body really contribute towards the functioning of us as a whole, right. as a person? We are more than the sum of our sort of uh, biological entities, right? So in the uh, late 1920s. There was a a physiologist, Walter Cannon. He coined this term called homeostasis, which um, it's a capacity for our body to maintain internal constancy. So everything of the body is making sure that we function like you could be in the Arctic or you could be in, um, you know, uh, the tropics. Your body temperature is still regulated. Mm. Your body regulates your temperature. Right. right? And when any one part of your body has something sort of an external uh, germ or something, you know, white blood cells rush right. to that spot from, they don't consult with each other. They just go. <laughs> yeah. They know what to do. They don't <laughs> consult with the UN of the body system. <laughs> so, in, so I think, in a sense, this homeostasis does not occur by you know chance. It's a result, uh, he wrote, that of a well-organized self-government. And so when Baha'u'llah talks about this uh, idea of society as a human body, we can certainly function as though we are separate but equal and different. Right. But truly we are not. But if we are, if we act with that consciousness of oneness, that you know we are truly interconnected with each other. So what would our systems of government look like? And mm-hmm. what would our, you know, even at a very basic level, what would our neighborhoods look like? Right. If, you know, starting from there. Right. And that goes all the way up to different local, national, international um, levels of engagement. Right. Um, co- we, we are, we constantly talk about countries act in self-interest. Right. And to a certain extent, this is true. I mean, countries want to, you know, preserve themselves. But when self-interest comes into uh, competition or, you know, or seemingly uh, looking at two different points of view, how do you find a common solution, this win-win mm. solution, not think of things in zero-sum games? I think this idea of oneness really allows us to explore different options differently. And I mm. think that's really the uh, key to this um, analogy. And I think, you know, next time, this is to our listeners and to ourselves, <laughs> yeah. we are in a uh, situation, in a, in a problem situation. Yeah. If we try to apply that analogy, <laughs> maybe we'll come up with different, you know, different solutions. So like, right? I don't know, let's think of an example because I need to do better at this. God knows I do. Like if uh, I, I, I rush, I walk very, very fast. I, I don't know why I walk fast, but I do. And uh, one of the things that really, really annoys me is when I'm, even if I'm not in a rush, 
But if I'm walking up the escalator for folks who've taken the the escalator in in Washington or on any of the subways, walking up the escalator or running up the escalator (laughs) (laughs) and, and someone is standing in the middle of the escalator and or they're sort of moved to the right, but like they're in the way and I can't get up the stairs or I, I will politely ask and say, you know, excuse me, as I try to make my way, my way up. But I, a part of me now is wanting to say, OK, what am I really like mad about? I, I have been wondering, like, why am I in a rush up these steps? And why do I feel some sort of like anger mm-hmm. towards this person who is doing <laughs> whatever he or she wants to do? Maybe they're not feeling too well and they don't want to rush up the stairs. So in terms of thinking of the the sort of movement of people's up this elevator as a as a as a oneness and as the human body, um, if I were to barge into this person and they were to fall down the stairs, mm-hmm. they could have ripple effects on the person in front of them mm-hmm. who could then affect the person in front of them. And maybe someone's then late to pick up their kid because I was in a rush the metro shut down. because the Metro shut down because <laughs> I was in a rush to get up or down the stairs. <laughs> so this is an interesting um, idea, right? I mean, the, a, a slow person and a fast person. Yeah. You know, maybe slow and fast for different reasons. Yes. Uh, some people do stand in the middle of the, <laughs> and that is not okay. You see? We need to do some good education see, around yes, metro yes. etiquette. But I think um, the, <laughs> the, the other idea is that we are diverse and it's beyond skin color. Yeah. You know, and beyond ethnicity. Right. We're and pace. Truly, <laughs> pace. And some people are morning people. Some people are not. Some people are fast. Yeah. More, more sort of thoughtful, methodical people. Other people rush. And at different points of time, different groups in you know, different societies and countries, we need that diversity. Right. And what is really striking about the human body is this unity in diversity. Mm. That our cells are not identical. Right. And that's the strength. Yeah. <laughs> that is the strength. You don't want a human body full of ears or nose. Right. Or eyes. You, you want... <laughs> Yes, you know what I mean. It would be the human um, body. Yes, yeah, so so that's unity in diversity. And is it possible for us to imagine societies mm. also like this unity in diversity? What would that look like? Where this diversity is not something that is tolerated, but it's actually welcome, right. And something that is incorporated. This is right. sort of extending this to elections and governance. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, countries function best when all of the population is involved in important decisions, that the diversity of the country is tapped into right. um, as the source of strength, not just something you make space for. Right. Another analogy that I often use is also coming out of uh, you know, the Baha'i writings is humanity being like a, a bird with two wings. Mm. One is male and one is female, and both wings need to be strong and powerful for the bird to um, function well. And if you sort of think about countries that are only tapping into 50% of their talent pool when women are not allowed to work. Cultures that may say women's voices should not be uh, heard in public or in representation and government. How could that country honestly think it's doing well when it's not tapping into half of its human resource? But to push back on that, mm-hmm. and this sort of is, is related to the, 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 the next question I'm going to ask, some some societies or some groups of people will feel like women have nothing to offer. Right. So if you inherently, if you believe that inherently another group has nothing to offer, then what is the incentive for you to even attempt to try to understand or incorporate them into into society? If you feel like as a man um, that you have all of the answers, you have all of the experiences and the knowledge and the thoughts you need to govern and women uh, maybe are better served behind closed doors or in, in different roles, right? What is the incentive for you to even think that women should be sitting mm. at the table. You know, it's, it's, it's a great way you framed this question. <laughs> uh, there was a professor out of Amherst um, whose thinking was very influential in my early career, uh, Nat Rothstein. And he would often talk about prejud- uh, prejudice as an emotional commitment to ignorance. <laughs> <laughs> I love so it. So this question of what is the incentive, I think that if so much research. There is so much data. <laughs> there is so much example. So the real question is, what is stopping you <laughs> from taking that? And I think it's um, so in, in the work that we do when we try to make this case for inclusion, the first question we try to say, do you really not? Are we really having this conversation? And when you get past that, yeah. you know, you're kind of like, OK, 
let's take a look at this. Businesses that have hired women or have more diverse boards tend mm-hmm. to do much better. Right. So there, you, you start with that. And right. You start showing there's an economic advantage. Right. And right. There is a better talent. You outperform your competition. Right. You know, your talent pool is larger. And when you uh, bring diverse voices, then there is a, you know, new ideas come up. Right. And you may be, there's innovation. Right. So you point all of these reasons. Right. right. Um, but, but it doesn't necessarily mean less for that person or for that Not at all. And this is the point, is that you actually, right. you know, you when you share... You know, we teach children, right? You know, happiness shared is happiness multiplied. And it's truly the same with uh, this idea of power. Um, we think always power as dominance, as a way to in- impose our idea on somebody else. Whereas truly power is the capacity to perform, mm. the capacity to generate. So if you, when you start thinking of power as capacity, then suddenly sharing power doesn't seem as scary. Yeah, I, I agree. That's uh, power as capacity. I, I definitely like that that new term. And so we're living in a time where there seems to be a never ending uh, flood of just bad news and bad stories coming from all over the world. And the reality, as I see it, is, for example, issues like the Congo crisis, um, even issues such as something that I read recently about a Brazilian councilwoman who was assassinated, many, many other yes. stories, right? They make me very upset but there's not much that I can do about the problem right here from, you know, Arlington, Virginia. And in terms of your definition or your analogy to the body, like you said, when when the body senses that there is an invasion or some sort of health um, threat, all of the white blood cells attack. Um, the reality is, is that if I see something, an issue, if I see an issue or I see a problem in Brazil or even maybe right here in the United States, you know, in L.A., Right. I cannot go to L.A. I don't have a direct ability to impact change directly in those communities or in the Congo or in the Ukraine, for example. So how do you as an individual here in the United States um, reconcile your your emotions around what's happening in the world and then also your ability to frankly do something about it if you can't or if you feel like you can't? First and foremost, I think industrialized societies make us feel there's such a emphasis on reliance on the self and the individual, mm-hmm. it actually disempowers us by telling us that we don't have that power or capacity. So first we have to sort of really pull that apart and question, right? Are we that powerless, really? The intention and the wanting, the willingness to engage, wanting to do something is half the battle. If you if you set your mind to something, you can find like-minded people, other organizations. But first and foremost, we pay taxes. <laughs> we have representatives. It is our taxes that run, you know, uh, that fuel this whole economy and government. So we can hold our elected representatives mm-hmm. responsible on issues that are that we are passionate about. We can call them right. and say, what have you done about this Theoretically, issue? we can call them. And, and <laughs> Theoretically. Yes. You can at least call the front front But really, hold, starting from there, you know, holding us um, accountable. And so many campaigns are become successful because individuals call and ask their representatives and tell them. Mm-hmm. There's an assumption of goodwill here, right? right we assume right. that people we elect want to do the right thing. Right. We may not always agree with their politics, but, you know, they are in positions of power to do the right thing. Or we call to their best selves and say, this is going on in this country. I'm deeply worried. What can you do? And we'll be surprised that our calls make a difference. And that's a very simple thing. For sure. Right from your living room, right from your couch, you pick up the phone and you call them (laughs) and say, this worries me. And, 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 And then from there, you know, you start connecting to others who have similar mm. um, ideas. We also sort of look at uh, foreign policy and the budgets and what programs are, um, you know, budgets support or not support. Um, and, and to just begin to keep ourselves informed. Yeah. Um, not just sort of consume what is in the media. Right. But really go into so much of what the work that is, you know, so much of the functioning of the government is transparent. It's out there. Right. And we, we just have to make the effort. So, so to go from sort of just electing representatives and say, now it's their work, but truly getting engaged. Yeah. Um, and of course, we can't all have impact on all problems of the right. world. So we obviously have to, and we have a limited amount of time. And right. We have to pick our battle. <laughs> yeah, but whatever yeah. it is that we are passionate about this day and age, I think the abilities there's more need than 
you know, people like they say the harvest is plenty, labor right. is few. Yeah. There's far more need than there are people. So it, I think the moment we make that effort, we'll find that we can truly engage in um, foreign policy initiatives yeah. or humanitarian initiatives yeah. um, overseas. Yeah. You know, working with like-minded people and organizations. And other organizations. That makes sense. That makes sense. So Vasu, you talked about calling our elected officials and, and you know, speaking our our concerns to, to elected officials. Uh, 2018 is a huge year for elections all around the globe. And, and we didn't talk about it. We didn't get a chance to talk about it on this show. But Russia recently reelected Vladimir Putin. Iraq, I believe, has elections coming up in May. Uh, of course, we have our elections in November. And here in the United States, um, I'm sure many have seen the march uh, for our lives where the youth spoke up and, and did exactly what you said and said, you know, we will... Mm-hmm. We will act with our feet come November if we don't see change um, that they that they feel is is necessary around the issue of of gun violence. And as you said, elections are are supposed to be this moment where we select those candidates who best represent the interests of the people and the things that we think are going to make society as a whole better and and address some of the concerns that we have. And but your work around hate speech and elections is is very timely and. We all know that leading up to Election Day, candidates campaign, they debate, they're out in the streets trying mm-hmm. to win the hearts and minds of, of their voters. Um, but often, as we've seen here in the United States, things get ugly. And we see abroad, I'm sure you mm-hmm. see abroad, things get get ugly. It's not a new thing. And party leaders and interest groups and candidates will use whatever tools they can to to um, win. And one such tool is hate speech. And this is, a, again, a particular area that you you focus on. So Vasu, what exactly is hate speech? And how do we distinguish between hate speech and someone just freely exercising their right to say whatever they want? <laughs> yes, <laughs> which, is, which totally happens and has happened. Yes, and you've... Um frame this is this is the fundamental dilemma <laughs> between free speech and um, hate speech right so there are there is no universally accepted definition like a single definition but there is a sort of consensus emerging um, globally looking at the universal deck starting from the universal declaration of human rights and a variety of covenants and treaties um, and you know national and international um, jurisprudence so any form of expression that spreads, incites, promotes, or justifies hatred based on race, national or ethnic origin, color, religion, gender, sexual orientation, age, or mental or physical uh, mm. disability, any speech that um, sanctions or promotes discrimination based on these you know, group characteristics is hate speech. Mm-hmm. Now, there's difference between sort of an individual, you know, um, as you said, saying whatever they do <laughs> yeah. versus, you know, does are you in a position to influence, you know, policy or are you in a position to influence people's thinking or actions? So there's a context, mm-hmm. you know, and then there is the potential of what kind of impact right. um, hate speech might have. So the severity varies. Yeah. And it's a scale. Um, but what we find during election campaigns is that, you know, everyone, there is a sudden focus on the candidates and the candidates are giving their, pla- talking about their platform, what they will stand, f- what they stand for and what they will do. And when they employ hate speech and then the media covers it mm. and then there is social media, which is unregulated space where people are talking about this. There's this potential to amplify, you know, this hate and discrimination. And it could be violence. It could be intimidation. It could be massive disenfranchisement. And what we find is that sometimes by appealing to the base elements of prejudice that may be in our people, in us, right. politicians are able to tap into large numbers of votes. And that's right. what they are um, engaged in. So I think, you know, hate speech that particularly incites to violence and intimidation, so physical or em- emotional violence, is particularly 
um, difficult because it not only impacts the particular individual against which it is used or a group, it can also create a general sense of insecurity mm-hmm. for people to uh, participate mm-hmm. in elections. Right. And, and I think going back to your example or your analogy of, of the human body, right? Mm-hmm. If we're saying that we're all connected, if we're saying that we all matter and we all are necessary for this world to function, uh, then targeting or using hate speech to target a particular part of the body, can it can reduce the integrity, the functionality, the purpose, the meaningfulness of the body or of that society. Is that a, a correct way to sort of connect the two? Yeah, you said it beautifully. You you look at countries that have been torn apart by uh, hate speech, right? During electoral political campaigns, but also outside of it, yeah. d- d- by hate. You see that one of the thing, common narratives that emerges, they say, we would have been so much more prosperous as a country had we not gone through this ethnic uh. Um, you know, hatred or violence. Right. And in my own country, in Sri Lanka, they often, um, you know, talk about had we not had the civil war, we would be like Singapore. Oh, <laughs> you know, wow. I've heard this over and over again. And I can like, you know, as a society, we only have ourselves to blame. Mm. Why did we succumb to that temptation? Right. And it's it's truly we start when you start thinking about things in terms of us and them, it really disempowers the country as a whole to uh, develop and and prosper. So um, going back to the human body analogy, literally, if like, you know, the, re- the rest of the body gangs up against the hand <laughs> yeah. and cuts it off, yeah. everything, everything is going to, yeah. you know, um, suffer. Yeah, yeah. More work for the other arm to pick up those Starbucks coffees and drive and <laughs> all of those things. Uh, so do you think then that you can have an election that's not, uh, that's sort of competitive and free of hate speech or is that like a fantasy? Because I I honestly am struggling with whether or not it's even realistic because people have different sensitivities around what's considered hate speech. What I think, um, for example, President Trump says about Mexicans, I find offense to that. I think it's hate speech, but someone else might say, well, it's the truth. You know, Mexicans are here to steal our jobs and they shouldn't be allowed in the United States. And, you know, when, when, so, so how do you, so do you think it's even possible considering all of the sensitivities and the different ways people view quote unquote hate speech? I think that, you know, that is the goal, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Um, Hopefully. You know, I mean, we have, you know, we have a constitution, we have international universal human rights, uh, universal (laughs) declaration of human rights that represent the dignity of people. So we should be able to compete on ideas. Yeah. Which is much harder to do. Yeah. than to compete on these characteristics. Yeah, that for sure. Our likes or dislikes that are prejudices. For sure. For sure. Um, and sometimes, you know, um, these prejudices are openly voiced in elections and sometimes they are subtly voiced in different ways through policy. They're all bad, right? But I think the, the, the key element is a healthy competition of ideas. Mm you know, of political party platforms or what they what people can do in terms of policy change. I think those are those are healthy ideas and I think our democracy is premised on that competition of um ideas, right? Some people might say this super you know, uh, polarization of political um, viewpoints is actually, you know, quite harmful in and of itself. Mm-hmm. There should be competition, but we must be able to agree and disagree right. on different ideas. There must be far more mixing of these rather than draw these right. very clear lines that right. anything one party advocates for, I'm going to, in principle, just say no. Say no, yeah. yeah. Uh, and vice versa. But <laughs> yeah. I think it should be we are able to agree on ideas. And I think as societies mature, that's the direction in which we are moving. I think this idea of the human body analogy, this oneness of humanity, these ideas of unity and diversity, the equality of women and men, these are principles that are, you know, both international legal principles, they're also spiritual principles. And these, you know, and when we choose not to follow them, mm. we are disadvantaged. <laughs> it's not that the principles go away. The, right. That's a reality. You know, this oneness is a reality. If we are the human body, and yeah. this is a reality. If we we can either choose to take advantage of that and function and be at the top of our game yeah. or continue to undermine <laughs> each other and right. struggle. And struggle. And I think we are very much in the struggle mode. <laughs> but that doesn't mean yeah. <laughs> that... Um, no, we're not. We're all good. We're talking about... <laughs> so with elections, I think, um, you know, the, the paper really makes this case that while politicians may use 
hate speech, there are independent institutions like election commissions, there may mm-hmm. be human rights commissions, the media, the uh, civil society, ethnic and religious leaders, people of goodwill right. in general, and people who follow the rule of law, who believe in the rule of law, right. should come together as a group and you know, uh, try to defeat this. This cannot be countered by any one institution right, right. Uh, or any one, uh, or just by enforcing laws. You have to change hearts. Hearts, yeah. If politicians find that people reject hate speech, they will not use hate speech. Correct, correct. So we are correct. falling for it. Just like next and, <laughs> yeah. and we're pretending like we are helpless. Right. And uh, But if we really start rejecting this notion, right. that no, I will not be played, um, you know, <laughs> what are your real policies? Yeah. Let's talk about those because that's what I'm interested in. Right. I think, you know, we can get to a point where hate speech may be used, but it's the fringe. Right. It's not outcome determining right, in right. the way that right. it may be now in many countries. Right. And, and, and so... You mentioned sort of international norms and standards around hate speech that have been created. And I don't know how many Americans know this, but there are actually um, conventions that the U.N. created many, many, many decades ago around hate speech, uh, around racial discrimination and and political and civil rights. And so you mentioned this this interesting um, convention in your paper. It's it's the International Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination known as CERD, C-E-R-D. So what, um, what is what is CERD and how is it, do you feel, um, sort of relevant in, in, today's, in today's times? And so as you said, it's a convention on the elimination on all forms of racial discrimination. Um, and it's a UN um, treaty, mm-hmm. right? But the timing of this is so interesting because this happens, and you talked about uh, Dr. Martin Luther King earlier. This treaty, you know, it was uh, adopted in the UN by, in 1965. It's around the same time that our civil rights legislation, the movement here in right. the US, was extremely active in our own civil rights laws. Right. And I think the two of you know, back then, very connected. Yeah. There was, you know, there was this movement in the U.S. that was inspiring international action and there was this international pressure uh, that was leaning on the U.S. government of the time. So, so you know, in 1965, the U.N. adopted this a broad human rights treaty to address racial discrimination, and that's absurd. And it was uh, signed in the U.S. in 1966 and later ratified by Senate in 1994. Uh, It's actually one of three international human rights treaties that have been ratified in the U.S. And it's binding on the states and the federal government. Mm. Of course, there's a supremacy clause of the Constitution. These are um, binding, uh, you know, since the U.S. has signed on to this. Um, Now, because the U.S. has a a very, very strong civil rights Mm -hmm. tradition, many public officials... um, and you know others may just assume that we are automatically in compliance with uh, <laughs> CERD, but that is not the case. Yeah. I think there are many places in which we are, but there is also a side of um, CERD that uh, that calls on the government to affirmatively take action to address racial disparities in terms of outcomes mm. uh, for people of color, both within government programs and society at large. So. If people of color, color are not having the same education, health, you know, um, economic, sort of economic social, outcomes, yeah. it's not just the steps. It's not just, you know, affirmative action in terms of bringing people in, but the outcomes mm-hmm. that come out of it, mm-hmm. then the government has a responsibility mm-hmm. uh, according to this treaty that we have signed. So, um, so it's, but what is really interesting is that it's the first time in international um, sort of jurisprudence that this idea of hate speech um, you know, comes up. And, um, you know, CERD basically says that governments have a responsibility to act on uh, hate speech. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights talks about dignity, talks about, you know, uh, equal rights, and talks about a series of um, fundamental human rights that that imply mm-hmm. that hate speech has no space in it. And right. literally, it has no space yeah. in, the, uh, in the document. There are certainly... Um, peripheral activities like gerrymandering and um, other voter suppression sorts of activities. Do you think that there's anything we can learn? Are there examples of other countries maybe who have good um, uh, governance or policies or groups that try to ensure that everyone is included in in the voting process? Part of why we wrote this paper was to find the answer to that question. (laughs) 
are there things that countries can learn from each other? Yeah. Right? Uh, IFAS, the organization that I work for, the International Foundation for Electoral Systems, much of what we do is to create this compendium of comparative best practices and knowledge and standards and share this with countries that seek our input and um, election commissions that seek our help. So, um, so in sort of researching this, um, I found that a lot of countries have, some countries have excellent laws. So I think the legal framework, and there's a lot of examples here in the book, yep. um, in the paper to uh, look at. So there's the legal to make sure that our laws are, you know, for example, are they compliant with CERD if we've signed right. on to them? Right. So are, we, are they at least inspired by this? Yes. That's one. The other, uh, so there's a legal, and then other institutions that are mandated to look at this and to protect this. And, um, you know, are there ways to hold people accountable? who are, um, you know, using this, both from a legal perspective, but also from a social perspective. So there are examples, I mean, most recently, Germany is trying to hold social media uh, accountable for fake news and uh, hate speech, that mm. as a media platform that is profiting, like literally profiting right. from people being on it, you have a responsibility to not allow, um, right. you know, um, hate speech um, and, and people who are targeting using hate speech you know, to take advantage of your data or use your platforms as a way to right. incite violence. Right. So um, for the most part, we're holding politicians accountable, but the way the message gets out is through social media or mm -hmm. mainstream media. So our media companies, how are you reporting? So there's a lot of good examples yeah. that are uh, coming up. Uh, so one of the tools used by America and other countries to advance its interests is, is foreign aid, uh, what we call development assistance. And um, the first thing that comes to mind for most people are things like humanitarian assistance. There's a hurricane or an earthquake or something and we send over support to help those countries. But there are other forms of development assistance that get a bad rap. And one of them is electoral assistance. And America has been known to and accused of using electoral assistance to interfere, as some people might say, with other countries' elections, particularly if America feels like the outcome of that election is not in their favor or would not be good for, for America. Like it, we saw this, you know, in Latin America throughout the 70s and, and in the 80s. So um, Vasu, your your organization is, is nonprofit. And so um, you all deal with electoral assistance. And as you mentioned in your paper, you gather the best practices from from around the world. So how can you and your work tell the difference or how do you tell the difference between electoral assistance, you providing best practices or feedback and electoral interference or something that might be perceived <laughs> right. as electoral interference? You know, that's a great uh, question. Um, before I answer specifically to um, the U.S. efforts and the efforts of my organization, I also want to put electoral assistance in the context of something broader. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, the United Nations provides probably the largest amount of electoral assistance globally. Uh, recently, I read in a paper that between 2007 and 2014, the U.N. assisted more than one third of all national elections worldwide. So electoral assistance is not something specific to America, US-based organizations such as ours, such as IFAS or any other um, you know, country. It's, a, it's an integral part mm -hmm. of uh, democracy assistance, mm -hmm. which is a part of um, you know, foreign assistance and, um, and aid. So I think the key difference between interfering in a country's internal policy, uh, politics, and election assistance mm -hmm. is that election assistance you know, supports countries in ensuring that credible elections are held, which is fundamentally a part of a human, it's a human rights operation. Right. It supports a human rights operation. So it's no different from, you know, food security or health or education in that sense. So this is not trying to impose one a vision mm -hmm. on uh, our vision on anyone else, but rather, you know, helping create an environment where credible elections, genuine elections mm -hmm. can be held according to international standards, mm -hmm. not according to any one country's America standards, America standards or and France so or wherever. Yeah. We ourselves may not meet all international standards <laughs> at all times. So right. I mean, it's, it's a good right. question of and each election is different. Right. Um, right. As well, there's no steady trajectories. Right. Um, so I think the so that's one, um, you know, key differential between imposing a country's political agenda versus helping 
the country that is receiving assistance uh, to sort of advance their own journey mm-hmm. towards um, free and fair and genuine uh, democracy. Yeah. Um, election interference may be, and it's not the purpose of this uh, podcast to really talk about does the U.S. engage in election in- right. interference right, or not. Right. Um, but election interference is towards a particular outcome. And election assistance there is no guarantee that there will be a particular right. outcome because it's a support to the process. Right. So you might be helping a country with uh, basic sort of democracy building activities like what to, how to build a ballot. How or to write a, how to write how a good to, election law. Right. How to conduct. How to know, reach out to people or civic whatever. and voter education. But you're not but you're not doing so with the intent of of a particular candidate or party being elected. Correct. Absolutely. And the you know, it's, it's really the. Um, credibility and the genuineness and the competition and the you know inclusion of the election that really um, you know we support we often watch carefully we're also not naive that in some countries you know when you provide that kind of neutral support mm-hmm. it may benefit groups that have been kept ah, outside of right, right you know the mainstream political process right, right. so you advocate for <laughs> a more open election if someone has been intentionally disenfranchised or there may be parties represent them they may benefit from it um, but again here the intention was not to benefit that particular party right but to really uh, and almost all election assistance, other than when the countries are brand new uh, or writing their own laws, most election assistance start off by looking at what is the constitution of that country say? Mm, what mm. covenants and treaties has that country signed on so to? We need to have a constitution to begin with. Exactly, electoral laws, constitutions. Right. So, so you, so it is grounded firmly in national and international law. Yeah. So, and I think. Interference doesn't have that many constraints. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. In a sense, it's much easier yeah. than election assistance. Yeah, yeah. And then the other difference, um, main difference is as election assistance providers, usually it's the host country or an entity that has been formed by the UN or, you know, uh, in the rare cases, um, you know, entities that, that the UN has set up to conduct the election. Election assistance providers provide that assistance and then we have to step back. Mm. So this paper that I referred to um, earlier on, um, came out of the University of Gothenburg in Sweden. That's what they claim that not all election assistance projects are successful, right. even by their own standards, hmm. because they are they attempt, they provide the best support. At the end of the day, it's the the recipient of the support, the election bodies in those countries, right. the, the people, stakeholders, yeah. the people. They determine what to use and not to use. Right. I, I sort of see election assistance sort of like maybe. Uh, you know, maybe you go to the the doctor. The doctor provides you the prescription, says, here, you've got to take this medicine twice a day with food, drink water, um, and you are not allowed to, you know, maybe eat foods with high amounts of, of salt, right? They, they sort of prescribe for you in a way the things that they feel will address what's going on with your body. It's up to you, the individual, <laughs> to take those pieces of that prescription and then apply it to your to your to your system to your to your health so then that you can get better or achieve whatever it is you want to achieve that's very well encapsulated i think that's what electoral assistance truly is uh, about election assistance is not election interference and yeah. there's a big difference between the two and election assistance is a global effort. And I think yeah. it's really important to understand that, um, mm. you know, that it's many, many organizations yeah. around the world do different components. Which, again, going back to your wonderful human body analogy, it sounds like we're saying that it, it in adherence to some of these or all of these, ideally, these standards um, of elections and, and political activism, um, we we all benefit right from from this work. And so um, I, I want to end uh, because we are honoring Dr. Martin Luther King's life. Um, he was known as the king of love um, and, and a peace warrior. And a lot of work um, and studies and debate has, has gone on since the time he's passed about, you know, the relevance of his work. Um, uh, and more recently, work, uh, people have been looking at his relevance in the, in the space of foreign policy, as I, as I mentioned. So do you think there's room, actually, in, in thinking about the work that you do? You, you go to post-conflict areas where you see a lot of violence and hate and anger and, and devastation. Do you, do you think that there's room for what Martin Luther King, you know, he, he termed as, you know, global mutuality um, or, 
the more soft and fuzzy term is, is love. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> do you think there's room for that in, in today's world of very, very bad news <laughs> that's coming from everywhere? You know, I, I use this verse from the Baha'i writings to um, really motivate me when <laughs> I uh, am in the face of um, ethnic or um, religious or, in, or any form of hate, that a thought of hate must be conquered by a most powerful thought of love. A thought of hatred must be destroyed mm. by a more powerful thought of love. Mm. Um, and a thought of war must be conquered by a more powerful thought of peace. So mm. is there space for it? I think yes. I absolutely <laughs> think you know there is space for um, love um, and justice. And I think they're both important to what we think of at peace, mm-hmm. right? I think um, so peace is not the absence of tension, right? as Dr. King said, right. you know, it's the presence of justice. Right. These concepts that, um, you know, love or peace or justice, these are fundamental to us functioning as a, um, as as a, a society, body. as a human body. <laughs> yeah. and, um, and, if, and there has to be a coherence between what we believe in and what we want to achieve in foreign policy, right? You know, but I, 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 I truly, I truly think that uh, Dr. King's vision is a powerful vision that continues to inspire. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it's the same vision Mahatma Gandhi uh, before mm-hmm. him, or Nelson Mandela mm-hmm. after him, or these mm-hmm. great world political leaders uh, who've transformed their countries and yeah. transformed humanity yeah. uh, for the better. And um, one thread that sort of connects all of them seems to be that they turn to the core spiritual teachings of their religious mm, very tradition for inspiration. Very true. So Dr. King didn't keep his religious beliefs or spiritual right. beliefs outside Correct. of his politics. Correct. Correct. <laughs> and I think they do and it's because there isn't that dichotomy. We are who we are and we bring all of ourselves. Right. And if we don't, then that may be that may be the problem. <laughs> <laughs> well that's a perfect way to end. That may be the problem is us. Um, I certainly want to thank you, Vasu, for spending time with me today and and unpacking this. We could keep going and going and going and going. Um, You mentioned that, you know, your faith is where you go to keep you in a good mood and centered and grounded. I I agree. I am the same way, but I also look to music. Yes, indeed. And and on this show, we we use music as a way to land our plane Nice and gently when we've been talking about very, very serious um, issues that can be very frustrating. And so I ask each guest to tell me a song that keeps them in a good mood. What is your song, Vasu, that keeps you um, in a good mood and why? The song that I picked was Andy Grammer's song, It's Good to Be Alive, right? You know, <laughs> and, um, and, and, and it's because I truly think we live in extraordinary times. Um, and just as much as this negativity around us, there's just extraordinarily positive things. So I think we live in great times. <laughs> and maybe we end on that. Fair <laughs> that enough. Note. I appreciate that. Uh, thank you all for listening to this episode of What in the World. Remember, you can listen to us at whatintheworldpodcast.com. And we are also on SoundCloud and on all of the social media outlets you can think of, Twitter and Facebook as What in the World Podcast. You can find more information about Vasu and his work on our website and on social media. And if you have certainly any thoughts or questions, you can email me at whatintheworldpod2017 at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.